Merry Christmas. Have you been saying it around town yet? Are you not quite into the spirit of Christmas or where are you at? It's hard not to notice it, right? It's hard not to notice that Christmas is coming. We were able to decorate the stage this week and make a couple changes here that kind of made it a little bit more Christmassy. You can see it in the malls and you can hear it on the radio. Christmas is coming whether you like it or not. It's right around the corner. And I, I love Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. We've had our tree decorated and up for a couple of weeks now. And uh, just kind of to gearing up for it. But there's so much about Christmas that I love. I love all of the, the, the bells and the whistles and the decorations and the trimmings. I love the turkey and the dressing. I love the leftover turkey and dressing. I love the dressing. Just gravy, dressing. We're good, right? Throw a little turkey on that. We're right back into Christmas all over again. I love Christmas. There's so much around that surrounds Christmas. In our culture in Canada here, there's this natural ramping up of Christmas, isn't there? There's this natural awareness that Christmas is happening. There's the end of summer, the Labor Day weekend. That kind of sets the tone for me. At that point, I begin to think, all right, the weather's getting cold. We're coming into the fall season. Just around the corner, Christmas is coming. You already think about it by, by the time Labor Day weekend is over, at least I do. That first cold day in September, there's always an eager staff member in our office that begins to play Christmas music in that first cold day in September. And our resident Australian starts to pray for snow once that first cold day comes. You know that cold day when the frost is on the ground and you can see your breath and all that kind of stuff? Christmas begins in the office here at Evangel. It's already been, they've been playing Christmas carols for a while. There's that first cold day, the Christmas carols start. Then there's the Thanksgiving holiday. That's kind of the last big holiday before Christmas. Then there's the, the, the day right after Halloween, all of the chocolate pumpkins are gone off the shelf. And almost immediately by noon the next day, it's filled. The same shelves that had all the Halloween candy on it now have all kinds of candy canes and Christmas candies and all kinds of decorations and that sort of thing the very next day. You can start seeing the display showing up in the stores and the malls and the lights and the music. The weather starts to get colder. The first snow comes and there's this unconscious expectation building for Christmas. I thought of it last week. Last week, remember when you came to church last week? Everything was white, right? The snow had come. I walked out of the Atwater station, and the the whole uh, Cabot Square was just full of snow. The trees were full. The snow was blowing down heavy and hard. And I looked up into the windows of our church, and we had these big fall pumpkins still painted on the windows. And I thought, oh, missed it by that much, (laughs) right? But there's an expectation for Christmas, There's all kinds of signs and things that happen that kind of make us aware that Christmas is coming. You start hearing Christmas countdowns all over the place. As of today, if you count weekends, there are only 21 more shopping days till Christmas. Yeah, you can hear the panic and the giggles, right? Ah, Christmas is coming. There's a display I saw July uh, 21st, I think it was, this one right here. July 21st this year, 
across the street, in the Canadian Tire window, 159 days till Christmas. <laughs> you know what? Christmas is a busy season. We get focused on family and food and celebration and presents and gifts. And then we have the influence of our community and our culture and the commercialization of Christmas and all of those things kind of create this whirlwind at this time of the year that gets us focused on Christmas but maybe not focused on the purpose and the reason of Christmas. Other countries celebrate Christmas differently or they don't celebrate Christmas at all. And, and I didn't really realize this natural unconscious ramping up of Christmas until I moved and we lived abroad and when we lived, spent those years in Thailand. That was when we noticed that Christmas could really sneak up on you if you don't have those checkpoints along the way. In Thailand, the weather's basically extremely hot all the time. That's just the way it is. So there's no cold weather that comes that reminds you. And all of a sudden, it's December 23rd, and you think, wow, Christmas is in two days, and there's been nothing building up for it. The malls aren't decorated. They don't celebrate it. You don't hear about it in the same way that you do here. Some of the malls are owned by Europeans, and so they'll dress them up a little bit, and they'll play some Christmas carols. But it's just kind of weird. There's no really set pattern. And the Thai people, they see that the malls are playing Christmas music, and they, they, they know that Christmas is for the white person, and the white person goes into the mall when they hear the Christmas music and they buy stuff. So all year long in the shops and the stores, the, the, the Thai people will play Christmas music in the middle of July because they think when white people hear Christmas music, they buy stuff. <laughs> and so they commercialize Christmas. So they think, today we're going to sell some things. And they start playing Christmas music. Christmas Day in Thailand, we would crank the AC. We'd turn the air conditioner way down. We'd get the house really, really cold to try and get some kind of a feel for Christmas. We had a fake tree that we would have in the corner. We bought it off another missionary family that was moving to a different country, and they couldn't take it. It didn't have a stand, so I went and got a tree stump, a real tree stump, and had a hole in it, and I put the tree in the middle of that so that it gave us a little bit of a feel of a real Christmas tree in the middle of our home. And we cranked that air conditioner down. We get it as cold as we could, but yet when you look out the windows of the house, you can see the tires melting in the car in the driveway because it's just un unbelievably hot. But in our culture, in our community, we have this, this ramping up of Christmas, these unconscious landmarks or these unconscious moments that point to Christmas. And with the busyness of the season and all of the good things that surround it, sometimes we could just glaze over the incredible miracle that is the birth of Christ. Sometimes Christmas just gets overwhelming, and it's not a bad thing. It's not that those things are, are wrong or those things are, 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 are not good for the family or good for the community. They're all good things, but sometimes we glaze over and we miss the purpose. It's easy to participate in Christmas with all the stuff that happens around us without actually pausing to reflect on the significance of the birth of Christ. And so today as the month of December starts and the Christmas decorations are up, I thought, let's talk about Christmas. Let's talk about the child. Let's talk about the birth of Jesus. 
As Christians, we believe that God invaded our world in the form of a baby, that he grew to be an adult without sin as an example of holiness for the singular purpose of sacrificing himself for our sins. That's what we believe. That's at the core of our belief. If you know about Christmas at all, you know about Mary and the angel Gabriel and the dangerous journey to Bethlehem, about Caesar's decree and Herod's jealousy, about the inn and the stable and the manger, about the angels and the shepherds, and about the wise men from the east and their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All of these things are wrapped up in our Christmas celebration. All of these stories are so well known that when we hear them again, we don't really hear them at all because we've heard them all before. We hear, but really, we don't really hear. We also realize that there are some significant landmarks in our faith that are central to our beliefs. Creation is one of them, the first three chapters of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created mankind in his image, and we have that as a cornerstone and a foundation of our faith and of our belief system. Another one is the death, the death of Christ and the significance of his death and all that was accomplished through the death. And another one is that resurrection. It's crucial that he rose again from the grave and he conquered death and he lives today and he is our living Savior. But of course, we have that moment of that birth, that virgin birth at the very beginning of it all. There was a great push in the 90s to secularize the Christmas season and push to make a holiday season with no celebration of Christ. And we know that that push continues today, that there is still a movement that wants to take the Christmas holiday and, and remove it as a celebration of the birth of Christ and just make it a holiday season. Let's no longer celebrate Christmas or celebrate Christ, but let's have all the bells and the whistles and the trimmings and all the other things and all the whirlwind of Christmas, and let's put it over here and separate it from the true meaning, from the, re- from the birth of Jesus Christ, and let's just have a holiday season and not a Christmas season. Secular humanism went as far as to write a decree and put it out on the radios and the TV shows, and they went as far as to say this, They said this in order to get people that didn't believe to stop celebrating Christmas. They said this. They said, if Jesus is not your Savior, Christmas is not your holiday. They wanted us to stop celebrating Christmas. A push to change things. A push to remove the significance of Christ's birth. A push to to cover it up and to not allow it to be said or shared. And you know, as we know, this battle continues today. You know that it only takes four generations to significantly change public opinion about any social change or any social issue. Only four generations. If a generation has something and in that, in that society or in that culture it is deemed unacceptable, within four generations it has gone from being unacceptable to being embraced. 
The first generation that would have a problem with that issue, they oppose it. The next generation that would come along would tolerate it. This is the system. This is the pattern, how it goes. This is what the media uses to influence culture and influence society. The first generation opposing it. The second generation tolerating. The third generation that would come after that would accept it. And within a short period of time, that fourth generation then embraces it. Pick any social issue and you'll see that there's a pattern there where it goes from being opposed to tolerated to accepted to embraced. So that means an issue that was not accepted in social communities with our builders, which is our older generation, let's say. Let's pick something that, that was current then. When the builders came along, they would oppose that. And then the boomers would tolerate it. Generation X would accept it. And the next generation, the millennials, would embrace it. So in a short period of time, you see something being switched and changed and moved from unacceptable to acceptable. Some of those changes are necessary and right, but most of those destroy the moral fabric of our society and our belief system. And we've seen that. We've seen how quickly things can change. And we've seen how they've tried to change Christmas and suppressed Christ. Have you seen the new Apple commercial? There's a new Apple commercial. I saw it this week, earlier this week, and I've been looking for it again, and I haven't come across it. But this is basically the commercial. I thought it was very creative and, and, and uh, a bit of an eye-opener as well. But it had a young girl, maybe 9 or 10 years old, and she had an iPad, and she's running around the neighborhood with the iPad, and she's down the street, and she's Googling stuff and checking stuff out, and then she's in a park, and she takes a picture of a bug, and she has the picture there, and then she Googles the bug, and she finds what it is and does some research on it, and then you see her walking down the street, you see her sitting up in a tree and doing things up in a tree and her iPad, and then you see her laying down on the grass in her backyard with her, her iPad out and a little keyboard, and the neighbor comes out from next door and she leans across the fence and she says, hey, what are you doing on your computer? And the little kid says, what's a computer? And I thought, wow, it kind of hit me. Things are changing fast. But there's a generation that is now among us that is not going to understand the computer or have used it or want anything to do with the computer because what they're going to be able to do They're going to be able to do on an iPad or a phone or a watch or some other kind of technology that's going to come along and things are going to shift. And what was known and was used then becomes obsolete and gone. Did you know that in this little smartphone, and it's an old one, there is more computer capacity on this phone than the computers that were used to put a man on the moon? Right here. Perspective. Things change. Things change Things change whether we like it or not. And we know that people have been trying to change the significance of Christ's birth forever. Trying to change the significance of the birth and of the truth of who he is. So who is he? What child is this? The child that was born, the baby that has become the focus of so much excitement and so much controversy. Scripture and prophecy talk to us and teach us about the coming of the Messiah. Prophecies that happened hundreds of years prior to the birth of Christ announced his coming. 
Luke chapter 2 is the most common Christmas story. It's the one that we always read as a family Christmas morning. We gather the kids around and we read the Christmas story. We just take a few minutes. And the prophecies declare far more than just the Christmas story. And when Luke went into detail, he's the author of that book. And when he began to, to compile that book... He took time and he began to investigate and he began to research and he began to study the prophecies and study the words that were being said and match them up with the actual event of Christ's birth. Luke was a doctor and educated and he says that before he wrote anything, he took time to study the accounts, to talk to the people. Luke came to faith after Christ had died and he had heard the stories and he talked to the people and before he wrote his book, he said, I'm going to to study this well so that we have the truth and I will write about the truth. Luke 1 1 through 4 says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So before Luke wrote anything about the virgin birth, about the angels, the shepherds, before he wrote anything about the Christmas story, he studied it. He studied the prophecies. He studied the writings. He talked to the eyewitnesses. He lined up the facts of Christ's birth with the prophecies that had existed. And so the story in Luke 2 that we read often as the Christmas story was not just an account of what happened, but it was an account of the fulfillment of the prophecies that brought this child to be the Messiah. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Once he has studied it, he begins his account He begins to teach about all the things that have been studied and prophesied about this child as a way to verify Christ as the Messiah. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 19 is the Christmas story. I'd love to read it to you today. Luke chapter 2. About that time, Emperor Augustus gave orders for the names of all the people to be listed in record books. These first records were made when Quinarius was governor of Syria. Everyone had to go to their own hometown to be listed. So Joseph had to leave Nazareth and Galilee and go to Bethlehem in Judea. Long ago, Bethlehem had been King David's hometown. That's important to know. And Joseph went there because he was from David's family. That's also very important to know. Mary was engaged to Joseph and traveled with them to Bethlehem. She was soon going to have a baby, and while they were there, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She dressed him in, uh, in baby clothes and laid him on a bed of hay because there was no room for them in the inn. That night in the fields near Bethlehem, some shepherds were guarding their sheep. All at once an angel came down to them from the Lord, and the brightness of the Lord's glory flashed around them. The shepherds were frightened, 
But the angel said, don't be afraid. I have good news for you, which will make everyone happy. This very day in King David's hometown, a Savior was born for you. He is Christ the Lord. You will know who he is because you will find him dressed in baby clothes and lying on a bed of hay. Suddenly many other angels came down from heaven and joined in praising God. They said, praise God in heaven. Peace on earth to everyone who pleases God. After the angels had left and gone back to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see what the Lord has told us about. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph, and they saw the baby lying on a bed of hay. When the shepherds saw Jesus, they told his parents what the angel had said about him. Everyone listened and was surprised. But Mary kept thinking about all this and wondering what it all meant. The Christmas story, not just the account of his birth, but a declaration of fulfilled prophecy. Luke points out several things in this account that show us that this story, this child, is the awaited king of Israel, that this child is fulfilled prophecy. He writes about Mary in chapter 1. In the very first chapter of, of the book, he writes about the angel coming to Mary, that the angel appears and, and tells her that she will become with child. Even as a virgin, she will become... This is specifically important to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah. And Luke writes about the prophecy in Isaiah that says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Luke is clear to make the connection. This is the miracle birth from God. He also writes about the place of birth, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 1 and 2 says this, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And Luke is very specific in his writing that Joseph came from the house of David, that his hometown was Bethlehem, the same town that David was from, that he was from the line of Judah, the same uh, town where the tribe of Judah resided. Genesis 49.10, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until To whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Jeremiah 23.5 talks about being a descendant of King David. Someday I will appoint an honest king from the family of David, a king who will be wise and rule with justice. As long as he is king, Israel will have peace, and Judah will be safe. The names of the king will be, this king will be, the Lord gives justice. Luke and Matthew go into the account, the genealogy of Joseph and Mary to take the study, to take the information and lay it on paper so that we could see the genealogy of Joseph and the genealogy of Mary that leads them back to David, back to that tribe of Judah. The census that Luke writes about required everyone to go back to their hometown 
And Mary and Joseph were from Bethlehem. The census took them back there because they were from the line and the lineage of King David. There were so many things that were orchestrated, so many things in the the book of Luke and the other Gospels that talk about the miracle of that birth. It had to be orchestrated by God. The birth of John the Baptist who will announce the coming of Jesus. The angel's conversation with Mary that you are highly favored. The birth of John the Baptist. A decree from Caesar Augustus. An angel appearing to Mary. A virgin becoming pregnant. An angel coming to Joseph in a dream. A baby who would be called Emmanuel. A mysterious star in the east. A group of wise men showing up in Jerusalem. Angels appearing to shepherds. A trip to Bethlehem, an inn that was full, a stable that was available, a babe wrapped in rags and placed in a feeding trough, a star that led the wise men to the right house in Bethlehem, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, a dying king who tried to kill the baby. All of this written about in Luke and the other Gospels, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Prophecy fulfilled through Jesus. Not only do we have Luke's account, but we also have Jesus himself declaring that he is that child. John 6, 48, Jesus declares this, I am the bread that gives life. Bethlehem, the city where he was born, means house of bread. He is the bread of life from the city that means house of bread from the king of David, who is from the tribe of Judah, it is prophecy fulfilled. Many of us know the story in the Gospels about the woman at the well. As you know the story, Jesus stops at this well at noon to rest. The disciples walk ahead to the village to buy food, and Jesus is left alone at the well resting. Usually the women would come early in the morning and they would draw water for the day. And so it's odd that a woman approaches at noon where Jesus is at resting. She comes at noon because of her lifestyle and sin and is not accepted by the other women. And she is kind of put aside and shunned by the community. And so to avoid embarrassment and To avoid scandal, she waits until there's nobody around, and then she approaches the well and draws the water at an odd time of the day. It just so happens that on this day when she comes, Jesus is there. She's a Samaritan, and Jesus a Jew, and they begin to talk. That was something that was also very uncommon and and very unacceptable. Jesus begins to speak with her, and as the dialogue continues, Jesus begins to reveal things in her life that no stranger would know. Jesus begins to talk about how many times that she has been married. You've been married five times, and the one that you're living with now is, is not your husband. And because of all of these revelations, the woman is amazed, and, and, and she begins to, to, to cite something that a Samaritan woman would 
not normally know, but because of the prophecy fulfilled and because of the life of Jesus and because of the talk that's happening within the community and all the miracles that are taking place, this woman knows the story of a man that is coming to be the Messiah. And she says this, she says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Jesus makes that declaration that he is that child, that he is the Messiah. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says this, Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning, stating that he is coming to present the full meaning of the prophets, that he is that person. Jesus remains the first and only person in history to be taken seriously by people throughout the world as being that child. John 1, 14 and 15 says this, the word became a human being and lived here with us. We saw his true glory, the glory of the only son of the father. From him, the complete gifts of undeserved grace and truth have come down to us. John spoke about him and shouted, this is the one I told you would come. What child is this? Isaiah 9, 6 says this. A child has been born for us. We have been given a son who will be our ruler. His names will be Wonderful Advisor and Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. He's a wonderful counselor. All wisdom and knowledge is in this child. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. One of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. All power was in this child, is in this child. The everlasting Father, the hope of eternity, and the Prince of Peace. Peace for mankind lives in this child. I came across a, a poem this week. It's not really a poem, but, but it's this. It's, if you are confused, he is the wonderful counselor. If you are weak, he is the mighty God. If you are scared, he is the everlasting Father. If you are disturbed, he is the Prince of Peace. I think probably the most important part of Isaiah 9, as it describes his names and who he is, probably the most important phrase in that verse is this, a child has been born for us a gift for us. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a child is given. What child is this? Yeah. 